I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. It was evil. It was corrupt. It was dirty cops. Uh, it was leakers and liars. And this should never, ever happen to another president, ever. We first went through Russia, Russia, Russia. It was all bullshit. <laughs> that was President Trump taking his victory lap the day after he was formally acquitted by the Senate in the third impeachment trial in U.S. history. The president, of course, was true to form. Defiant, unrepentant, profane, with not a hint of contrition or magnanimity to those who had crossed him or tried to hold him accountable for his conduct. It was the culmination of an extraordinary four days in American politics that saw a complete meltdown of the Iowa Democratic Caucus, a near collapse for the party's presumed frontrunner, former Vice President Joe Biden, and a State of the Union speech more acrimonious and bitter than anybody can remember. We'll break it all down, get an on-the-ground account of what actually happened in Iowa, and look forward to what we can expect for the rest of the campaign with veteran Democratic pollster Joel Benenson on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So uh, quite a few days it has been. The impeachment trial ends exactly how we all expected it was going to end with the acquittal of the president. But quite a surprise wrinkle with Mitt Romney voting to convict and remove President Trump. Yeah. You know, I think all along there was, uh, you know, I think Democrats were holding out hope that Romney might vote to acquit. He acquitted on one of the two articles. But it's more the way he did it and the speech he gave, I think, that uh, kind of had everyone glued to their television sets watching it. It was really, I think, a speech that a lot of people will remember for a long time. And I got to say, you know, we played the clip of Trump giving his you know, victory speech at the White House at the beginning of the show. I think that the contrast between those two speeches really stands out this week because Trump was, you know, as you said in the opening, I mean, not a hint of contrition. He was angry. He was lashing out. It was all about him. And that really stood in stark contrast to Romney, who gave this kind of somber speech that invoked his faith, his conscience, that put country above party, and that reminded us that sometimes people in public life do act as if there is a kind of a honorably, co- uh, honorably <laughs> and with a collected, uh, yeah. you know, with kind of, you know, values, shared values um, that we at least at one time adhered to, uh, no matter what party you belong to or what tribe you were in. 
Yeah. Uh, by the way, what did you make of seeing uh, Bill Barr, our attorney general, in the front row in what was essentially this celebration of the president's acquittal in which he sort of, you know, makes dark hints of things to come, presumably a reference to the Durham investigation, which he is hoping will expose the, quote, dirty cops and their actions that began all this with the Russia investigation, I mean, seeing Barr laughing and yucking it up with the president's political supporters, I don't know. I would have thought he would have refrained. From well, that. I think we're pretty, I think you and I are a little naive about Bill Barr having covered him <laughs> uh, back so. in the day in a very different time yeah. when people were expected to follow certain norms. I uh, will say, I remember doing a story back when he was uh, attorney general in, um, in the George H.W. Bush administration. And I guess it was around 1991. And the Republican National Convention was was a couple of weeks off and he was planning to go. And that was a break with tradition for an attorney general or recent tradition, because, of course, in the old days, you know, attorney generals used to run presidential campaigns. But you know, he was going to go to the to the RNC convention and. I wrote a story, you know, saying that this he was going to do this, and it was a break with tradition. And um, he came under pressure to cancel his plan, so he didn't go. So on the one hand, you know, he is a deeply political guy, and he's the first to admit it. Very partisan. He's not just a kind of a conservative, you know, legal guy, but he actually is a, a real partisan. And so I think he, I think he wanted to be there. You know, I think he, I think yeah, he, yeah. Look. Here, here's the problem, though. I mean, we know Trump is bent on revenge. Uh, he wants, as Tom Bossert once memorably put it, Bossert being his first Homeland Security advisor, he was intent on getting his pound of flesh. And Trump's vehicle to get his pound of flesh is Bill Barr and the Durham investigation. He is determined to have them expose and go after all the people who he think did him wrong by launching the Russia investigation to begin with and continuing it and that bleeding into the uh, Ukraine impeachment. So one would think for that to have any credibility, it doesn't help to have the attorney general who commissioned this investigation to be sitting there yucking it up with the president's political supporters. I, maybe that's obvious. And, you know, maybe we, we are naive to even be surprised at this point about it, but it is a thing and it is worth mentioning. Um, I look, I, uh, I think even those people who, when Barr was nominated and, and confirmed, said, okay, this is going to be better than Sessions. Bill Barr is a is an institutionalist. He's a guy who's going to stick to the law and the facts. Um, those people don't, don't believe that anymore. So I, I don't think that the optics of him, they're not great optics, I agree with you, but I don't think that him showing up in an event like this is going to move the needle in terms of how people think about Bill Barr. So look, I mean, one, one question about this uh, spectacle today in the East Room in which the president, I'm pretty sure for the first time in history, said the word bullshit is uh, it's about the only appropriate thing one can say in the Trump era. I mean, what else are you going to say about everything? Yeah, but look, we are on? we yeah. are in we're almost nine months away from the election. We are in a presidential campaign that, you know, Trump is pivoting from impeachment to the campaign. Everything he does now is political. You have a State of the Union where address where 
You know, the Republicans are chanting four more years. I'm not sure that's ever happened at a State of the Union address. Then you have this political rally in the East Room of the White House. And so Trump sees this as an opportunity to rally his base. He thinks he's he's going to this is you know basically his blueprint uh, for winning. And I think it's a reasonable question as to whether this actually is going to be effective. And I think my guess is that that a lot of his advisors, his political advisors, actually probably didn't want him to do this, what he did today, didn't want him to go as far as he did. But, uh, you know, they, they can't control him. And there are probably others. I'm sure Steve Bannon out there is thinking this is the best thing he could possibly do. But at the end of the day, he is uh, not going to be able to completely rely on his base. He's going to have to win over some of those Obama-Trump voters. And, and you know, the election was decided, as we all know, and have said ad nauseum by you know, 80,000 votes across uh, three states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, and Wisconsin, I'm sorry. And so it's a question as to whether this strategy will work. Now, I will point out that uh, this past week, he got to 49% on the Gallup poll, higher than he's ever been, but that could be fleeting. And of course, the Democrats actually have to find a nominee to run against him. And uh, after watching the fiasco of Iowa, it does make one wonder how they are going to proceed. And ar- yeah, um, let's point that. around the same time that, that Trump was giving this speech, Tom Perez, the, uh, the chairman of the Democratic National Committee, was tweeting that uh, enough is enough and uh, the uh, Democratic party in Iowa needs to re-canvas the votes in that state, which could prolong a final result for days, if not longer. I mean, that is a total debacle, certainly not a good start for the Democrats. It essentially just wipes out the Demo- the Iowa caucus. I mean, we've spent months and months uh, following candidates in Iowa. They've you know flown out there repeatedly, gone to you know every town meeting and uh, you know far corner of the state, and it was all for naught because the uh, uh, the caucus just basically doesn't count right now. At least for determining who's the front runner, there were while Buttigieg and Sanders are neck and neck, at least in those special delegate counts, which I don't pretend to understand. There were losers. And uh, certainly Biden was the big one finishing fourth. Uh, If that happens again in New Hampshire, that is quite the blow to a guy who a week ago we all presumed was the front runner in the uh, Democratic race. So uh, I'm uh, eager to hear from our colleague, Brittany, who has uh, been out there in Iowa and can sort of explain to us how all this went down and how it all collapsed. So let's just get right to her. Okay, now we've got with us uh, Brittany Shepard, Yahoo News' national political uh, reporter, straight in from the scene of the debacle itself, Iowa, where she was covering uh, the Democratic caucuses for us. So Brittany, As we record now, 97% of the vote is in. It is neck and neck between Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg. Both are claiming victory. The chairman of the DNC, Tom Perez, tweeted, enough is enough, and has asked the Iowa Democratic Party to re-canvas the votes. I want to talk about how we got here, but let's start with 
What happens now? And are the Iowa caucuses in this cycle essentially meaningless, given all of the confusion, given how long it's taken? Traditionally, Iowa is important because if you come out uh, with, with a win, you get the big mo, you get all this press attention. What, what is the impact of, of all of this on the race? Well, certainly so many campaigns who are affected by this, frustrated by this, are calling essentially for the resignation of the Iowa caucuses writ large um, time and time again. Where we go from here is largely up in the air. Of course, Tom Perez just called for the IDP to recount the votes physically, which could mean conceptually that we will not have full results if they relent to Tom Perez until after we get votes from New Hampshire, which is you know, unprecedented, never happened before. But still, we don't know if the IDP has listened to Tom Perez. We do know that Mayor Pete's campaign called the IDP this morning. This is new reporting out of Bloomberg in the last like five minutes, saying that they were uncomfortable with the way that the state party was assigning delegates from satellite caucuses. And this is all a lot of confusing math that journalists hate to do. But let me try to make it as simple as possible is that where Bernie Sanders is getting a little bit of the uptick, like you said, Danny, we are at neck and neck um, between Bernie and Pete. But where Sanders is seeing that advance is in these delegates, the satellite caucuses, even one or two tenths of a percent can push him over Pete. And obviously, the Buttigieg camp is not very happy about that. They thought the math was incorrect. They're pointing to reporting in the New York Times say that said, you know, about 100 or so precincts math was uh, incorrect based on photos that the New York Times obtained. You know, I mean, can I curse on this show? I, I don't know if, I, if I'm allowed to be crass. But well, you can curse, but I think I think okay. it, given, the, given <laughs> yes. the situation right now, it's almost a requirement to My- curse. Yeah, yeah, that's why that's I'm getting some encouragement here from Mike. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's essentially it's a shit show, really. And that's what you're hearing from the campaigns. Uh, you look at the IDP members and they're giving press conferences. They're dejected. And the fact is, there's so many disputed truths. Like what is inherently correct is disputed. Biden's campaign is saying that on television, on CNN, that we might not be able to trust the results. Bernie's team is up and down. Obviously, the New York Times and many other places are reporting, including myself. I'm talking to a bunch of precinct directors who said that the the app that they were given only four days ago, which is or five days ago now, which is bonkos crazy. Was it working for second and first alignment? That, of course, can drastically change the results. So like what actually is the truth is up for debate, which is, you know, Trump's endgame. He loves this kind of shit, you know, where you can't actually tell what's up and what's down. So, you know, I w- I'm not able to give you a clear answer on where. Yeah, we go not just not, right. Like not, ju- not just uh, Trump, but, you know, I think the Republicans and, and others are exploiting this and exploiting the divisions because this situation is creating a lot more tension and division between the Democratic candidates. That's you know, great for the Republicans. It's great for Trump. You don't even need the Russians uh, to intervene the way they did in 2016 <laughs> because the Democrats are screwing up uh, th- this badly. One thing that I'm, I'm interested in, I sort of a little bit of a, on, on Twitter here, you mentioned that because uh, the Bernie people had an advantage with these satellite caucuses, there are caucuses that took place outside of the state of Iowa. And I think the delegates are counted there based on the number of people in those uh, in those caucuses. And the Bernie people clearly understood that. And so they packed those satellite caucuses with their people. uh, And so they had that advantage. That's how they caught up with Buttigieg. As soon as that happens, when um, the latest batch of results come in, they get up to 97 percent. They're essentially neck and neck with uh, with Buttigieg. 
you know, right after that is when uh, the is when the party chairman says, "Okay, now uh, enough is enough. We need to uh, recanvas." You know, you don't have to be conspiracy minded necessarily to wonder whether that once again is the Democratic Party, the establishment trying to stop Bernie. And I think you're already seeing that from the Bernie people. Oh, yeah. Not only Bernie supporters, but other campaigns were not given the heads up that Tom Perez was going to make this call. Tom Perez's excuse is that he wanted to get ahead of any calls of recounts from Democrats. But you would think he would give them even a text. It takes five minutes to say, hey, what do you think about these caucus results coming in crazy, right? So, you know, I don't necessarily think it's that conspiratorial at all. And you're hearing it from Democrats on Twitter or offline, not knowing what to do with this frustration, because where do you go from here? Usually you look at the National Party to come in and help intervene. And essentially what I'm hearing is a DNC is kind of decamped in Iowa for the past 48 hours trying to quote unquote assist the uh, Iowa Democratic Party. So uh, like people feel like they have nowhere to go to that, like the head of the household has like uh, essentially a coup. Right, The calls right. coming from the inside the house and they don't know where to turn to next. I think there's going to be lots of disorganization for the state and national parties going forward from here. And honestly, like sources were just texting me just saying like, ah, screw Iowa. Like why this? Why should this place ever go first ever again? Right. Okay. Well, a couple of things uh, that I want to ask you about. First of all, very quickly, is the caucus system dead? Not just Iowa, but do you think that there is going to be uh, a move to essentially end this archaic, idiosyncratic uh, system of voting for candidates, of picking delegates, so on and so forth? I can't see how that call doesn't come like very, very loudly and very, very quickly. Obviously, it's not like, something that can just be flipped on and off like a light, right? There's lots of procedural things to change the way the Democrats select their nominee. But if you look at an actual caucus, and many people, you know, they call me like, how does this actually work? It's a bunch of people in a gym essentially playing Red Rover until you know they get the results they want and then you know it, it's arcane it people who are you know either mentally handicapped or physically handicapped can't they can't get out they work a second job like they can't caucus it's inherently an uncapital d democratic process so i mean i've been hearing that from sources since day one okay so, i mean i, just I well, can't imagine how that's not everywhere i agree with you i think the caucus system is is dead second thing i want to try to unpack um, some of the questions about the impact of this fiasco in Iowa on the race going mm. forward, because, you know, at the end of the day, you're only talking about, what is it, 41 delegates out of Iowa, and that's a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of the total number you need to win the nomination. So let's say Iowa is just a like a non-entity, like it just it, it no longer is a factor. You still have every primary going forward, New Hampshire coming up, uh, Nevada, Super Tuesday states, you know, all the way to Milwaukee um, in July. What is the real impact of this on the race as far as you can tell? Well, I, I mean, what I'm hearing on the ground is that because of fumbles in Iowa, the, the campaigns are just going to try to say that they were the victor and and struggle. I mean, I'm talking to a lot of sources in, in Biden world who essentially feel like giving up and crying because of what happened in Iowa, and they're trying to re-steer a broken ship and move on in New Hampshire. But honestly, I just don't think that's going to work out in, in their favor. And I think a lot of campaigns um, are chattering that they're going to have to throw out their playbook completely and hopefully bank on whatever supporters of color they have in South Carolina um, and pour money into Super Tuesday. I mean, that's why 
you have to wonder that this is probably the best kind of gift the Democrats could have given Mike Bloomberg. Bloomberg sources were actually, funny enough, texting me all Monday and Tuesday, super giddy, which is maybe dark and dismal, but like they, they're on cloud nine with all of these folks in disarray fighting each other, having no money, having no viable, viable delegate counts. They're able to pump so much money into California and Texas and many other Super Tuesday states and kind of sail through. So they're happy to see people like stab and punch each other and for the entire process to light itself on fire so that they can um, kind of rise up and chip away at the people who would obviously be supporting Biden, maybe and maybe some other moderates. I mean, it's true. I mean, the, the, the with all of the doubt about who actually won in Iowa and what the process was like, the one thing that seems to be fairly certain is that Biden lost in Iowa, right? He ends up, you know, fourth and a distant fourth and uh he was polling much higher. He, you're always hoping to exceed expectations, and, and he did the opposite. So that is good for Bloomberg. And I guess a muddle at the top between Pete and Bernie is also good for Bloomberg. But Biden still has his so-called firewall in South Carolina. No, you know, you don't have a state. You don't I have- don't know, though, Danny. I and I'm sorry, and I didn't mean to cut you off, but it's just like I've been saying, you know me, I've been saying since the beginning, you know, trust Joe Biden's you know, black firewall. But black voters are very practical. All right. Like they've had a lot of misgivings to them from all parties from the beginning of time. And if they see someone like Joe Biden becoming less and less viable through the early states, like I don't think they're going to give him the time of day. You know, they want if they're going to leave the house and look, I'm black. OK, if we're going to leave the house to do anything, it's to do something practical and impactful. And so, you know, what you have seen for time and time again, election, election in South Carolina, is that these people want to put their votes to good use. So I don't know if I'm as confident in Biden's firewall as he is. Last question on this. Where do you think the uh, the black vote, and it's obviously not a monolithic vote, so it may be mm-hmm. divided, but where do you think uh, uh, black voters in South Carolina go if they abandon uh, Biden? Because so far, at least in the polling, you know, he has had a 30-point lead. I think that lead is diminished by about six points, but he has had an enormous mm-hmm. lead. So where are they going to go? I mean, Bernie, if Bernie keeps becoming viable, I think Bernie Sanders has a track record with having lots of young people of color. So, I mean, there's a possibility for them to go there, you know, gun to my head. That's where I think Mm -hmm. there could be some surprises, though, like Tom Steyer is not doing horribly. I don't think they're all going to bum rush Tom Steyer, but But he's gotten some not going to go to Mayor Pete. And he got some um, big endorsements in South Carolina. And obviously he's all all over the airwaves. So I think that's going to be pretty interesting to see. Well, Brittany, we're out of time. You will be on the uh, campaign trail for the next nine months and uh, we will be (laughs) continuing continually uh, checking in on you and um, look forward to your dispatches and to your analysis all the way through. Uh, thank you so much, Danny. I'm going to take a nap for like a week now. <laughs> I appreciate you having me on. How about taking a nap for like a day? Because there's a lot of work that needs <laughs> to be done out there. I got a, I got a, you know, news organization to run here, Brittany. <laughs> okay, I'll take a day. Well, I'll, I'll barter down. I'm okay. okay with that. All right, take care of yourself. Be safe out there. Thank you. Thank you. All right, and now to help us make sense of this truly wild 
political week. We have Joel Benenson, uh, the esteemed pollster, former pollster for the Clinton campaign. His firm, we should point out, is... Uh, and Pol- Obama. And Obama, sorry, yes. Yeah. <laughs> He's had successes yeah. and losses. Yeah. <laughs> um, and his firm is polling for Mayor Pete. Joel, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. Just to start out, we are talking on Wednesday, uh, a day and a half since the Iowa debacle. I guess the only thing I could start out by asking you is, like, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) It's a great question. Uh, Yeah, it's really, uh, I I think the, uh, talked to some people yesterday and I said, well, I think we'll all, uh, the next conversation we have will be mourning the passing of the Iowa caucuses and the other Democrat chimed in, uh, or a lot of us will be jumping on its grave. I mean, it's just an it's an aberrational thing to be so attached to. There's no reason for it. It ha- does have its advantages, and I think, frankly, there are no excuses here. I mean, as as you know, we used to tell kids I coached in uh, little league and baseball, excuses are for losers, and I think this is a real blemish on them, and I think they can't recover both from the snafu. You know, it has nothing to do with the people running the caucuses, but you had the snafu with the Des Moines Register poll on the weekend, compounded by this. But so, Joel, what in practical terms, what does it mean for the Iowa caucuses to be dead? Are they going to go away, or is it just that we're people aren't supposed to pay as much attention to them? I mean, what I think what does I think mean? there's going to be a movement in the Democratic Party, and justifiably so, to get rid of caucuses. Yeah, we have the technology to have primaries where right. people can walk in any time of day. This is a relic. It's a it's just out of date. We don't need to do this this way. In fact, everything the party's tried to do for the last twenty years is make it easier easier for people to vote, to bring them into the process more. This just can't survive, and there's no reason for it. We have plenty of technology that makes voting in primaries easier, counting efficient, more reliable. So turn it into a primary. Well, I think the party could establish rules saying we're only going to count primaries. And then also— If you, don't have a, if you want to have a caucus, go ahead, but we're not going to give you any delegates. But then on the whole issue of you know how representative it is, not that representative because uh, there's not a lot of diversity in Iowa, then you'd also— Move it up in the calendar. Well, look, the calendar back in the calendar. Move it back in the calendar. That being said, I, look, I, I think having a state like Iowa at the outset does one thing, but it's small enough where, and the caucus contributed to this, is it really required you to build a ground game. And what happened is the candidates who performed less well the other night didn't build a good ground game. And I'm not saying that. That's the only way to build a ground game. You can build a ground game for primaries now. People have gotten better at it. This has been the transformation of the Democratic Party really post-Obama, right? We did it not just in caucus states. We did it in primary states, and that's being replicated by successful campaigns. So I don't think there's any value in Iowa going forward anymore. And I certainly don't think I've never liked caucuses in principle. I think primaries are better. They're more democratic. And we ought to, as a party, just get rid of them. And I do have to say there's a high irony of after listening for three years to Democrats talking about how Hillary Clinton got three million more votes than Donald Trump and, you know, raising questions about the sort of fundamental democratic legitimacy of the president. We have an Iowa caucus, Democratic caucus, in which Bernie Sanders 
Sanders clearly, at least as we're talking, has more votes than Pete Buttigieg. Yet Buttigieg has more delegates. But that that could that, happen. That, that's that could happen fundamentally pro- anti-democratic, well, isn't it? it? No, not if not if the the delegate system is based on precincts or congressional districts. You could actually win a bigger margin in a place that might have in a, in a district that has more delegates than another district. So that to me is not fundamentally undemocratic. I think well, congr- wait, wait. If more voters vote for Bernie because Sanders not, than Mayor because Pete. delegates because you're electing delegates. Remember, you're not getting can this isn't a vote for the candidate. So there are going to be areas that have more delegates. Mm-hmm. So if you're in a state like New York or California and you're winning in, in some popular areas, you might be able to pile up a delegate lead but still not break away in the popular vote. It's different from the electoral college because the electoral college system skews very heavily towards smaller states, they get a a disproportionate advantage because of the two-senator rule. It's not population-based, whereas congressional districts are generally population-based. All right. We are here recording on uh, Wednesday when only— when 71 percent. Oh, is it now up to 71 percent of the vote has come in? And Bernie Sanders still has a lead in the popular vote, but Buttigieg is Uh, leading in in the the delegate delegate. count. Right. Uh, I don't know what caucuses haven't come in yet, but it looks like Buttigieg is either going to win outright in terms of the delegate count, and that's what counts really, or is going to, you know, be a very close second. This is a big deal. Now, we should point out that your polling firm is working for Buttigieg. Right, Katie um, Connolly. Katie Connolly, firm, not yeah. you personally, right. although you did do debate prep for little him bit. In, right. in, yes. in the past. Early stage. Talk about the significance of Iowa in terms of where the candidates have netted out. Yeah. Well, you know, there are two things that happen in these contests. You either overperform or underperform. (laughs) And if you overperform, that's really good. Even if you finish second or third, if you underperform, it becomes a real problem. And I think the conversation and the the buzz the last couple of days is the biggest underperformer here is Vice President Biden. Biden. You know, he had been leading or close in a lot of polls. There was a lot of uh, doubt about their field operation on the ground. And I think uh, that's going to create a narrative here that's going to be very problematic for him. And he's going into a state that could be tough territory. You know, New Hampshire has a history of kind of New England favorite son or daughter winners. Bernie Sanders won uh, New Hampshire against Hillary Clinton in 2016. You know, you had Paul Songus won it back in 1992. <laughs> John Kerry in 2004. Uh, people from neighboring, Mike Dukakis, people from neighboring states do well because remember, Boston is a big media market. And you've got, you know, New, New Hampshire gets Boston media. They get Boston migrants who move up. It's kind of funky, but Although, there is a pattern Although, we should there. point out just, you know, just historically that if you mentioned Songas, if you do play the expectations game well, you can be like Bill Clinton, who I think was like in third place in New Hampshire. He actually made it into second. Okay, he, he did. Was, but lost yes. by like eight, eight or ten points. Eight or ten points, but called himself the comeback kid right. and got out of town. <laughs> yeah. It was a great moment. But that's, look, and that's an element here that I think your question leads to that gets underestimated in a lot of the conversations because now we have so many polls. Journalists are inundated with polls and you love the data and you focus on that. But these momentum stories and how they get couched can really have an impact. And I think Vice President Biden is on very thin ice going into New Hampshire. Well, can I just say, not just Biden, because like Warren finished third. Right. Um, If she finishes 
third or fourth in New Hampshire. That's a real crippling blow yes. for her. That's right. on her backyard. Right. And Sanders and, and Buttigieg have the momentum right now going into New Hampshire. Right. So uh, she could be on very thin ice as well. Well, a- absolutely. And I think, you know, historically, not that these things are predictors, but the last time the Democratic Party nominee hadn't come in either first or second in either Iowa or New Hampshire was Hubert Humphrey in 1968. And he hadn't competed because Johnson gets out in April. We didn't have as many primaries. So I don't think it's dispositive that it's an absolute rule, but it has been a pattern that you do. And this goes to the point I made about momentum stories. Like if you're not first or second, you're trailing the field and it's really hard to, you know, generate interest. Well, let me ask about the Buttigieg in this context, because he's got the big mo, as they call it now, but he's going to have to see how he does in New Hampshire. He's going to have to capitalize on that because he's going to be going into states like South Carolina where he doesn't have African-American support. He doesn't, you know, he's got some money. He doesn't have a lot of organization down there and doesn't have organization in the, in the Super Tuesday states. So what are his challenges going forward? Well, I think it's, you, you've got to, the way momentum will be measured will be by staying credible and staying bunched at the top as close as you can, right? Doesn't mean any third place finish knocks anybody out like Elizabeth Warren, but you have to show some change up there. I think South Carolina, I always say that South Carolina is the most underestimated state of the early four. You know, we've had this Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina pattern for a while. And I think South Carolina you know, now it's going to get a lot of focus, but I think it should have gotten focus all mm-hmm. along from the media. I think it is an important state because it does reflect the population of America and the Democratic Party in terms of demographics pretty well. It does happen to be a southern state, obviously, and not a state that Democrats have won in a presidential campaign in a long time. But I think it does put pressure on all the candidates to perform well there. For uh, Buttigieg, I think he has to sustain this momentum enough. He has to show and maintain that he's a top-tier candidate. I think Warren, you know, she can't falter below third anywhere. I think another third or, or worse could deteriorate that if she's not close. Like, if all three are bunched, that's a different story. You know, if you come out of Nevada with three people in the low 20s, you're still in the top tier. That's how the conversation's going to go. The big test is going to be South Carolina for Buttigieg. He's got to show there that he can win or really perform better than the polls have indicated in a state with a diverse... Um, and he's now polling at something like 2% among African Americans. That's right. Right. But you're both journalists, Right. You know, <laughs> last I checked. Yeah. Let's, right, let's yeah. stipulate that he won't win African Americans, but if he shows a surge with African Americans of any significant amount in South Carolina, that's going to be the story. Look, you guys know the rule in journalism, right? Dog bites man is not news. Man bites dog is news. If suddenly Pete gets to double digits in South Carolina because he's built momentum in other states and he's getting more attention and able to, you know, spend a little more time there. The story is going to be, wow, after we said he was at zero with African-Americans, and, and he cleared the threshold story, and he's at 10 or 11 story, the, other story, the other story, Joel, is that, I mean, you know this from having been Obama's pollster. I mean, key part of the Obama coalition, his ability to bring out African-American voters in really large numbers, clearly core to uh, you know the de- prospects of any Democratic presidential candidate. With Hillary Clinton, that number receded. And so for any 
to win against Trump, they're going to have to get back to Obama-like numbers in terms of the African-American vote. Can Pete Buttigieg do that? How does he do it? Well, the first step is getting known. And because the concentration is so much on Iowa and New Hampshire, if you go and dig into South Carolina polls, he's unknown to about 35 or 40 percent of the state. Now, that puts pressure on because you have a short time horizon to get your name ID up in a meaningful way and connect with voters. But on the other hand, I think after New Hampshire, there'll be a lot of attention on South Carolina and you've got to spend a lot of time going and spending more time in South Carolina, I think, disproportionately than Nevada, because I think that state is much more important than Nevada caucuses. And whether it's fair or not, I think because Nevada is a caucus state, I think the Iowa blemish is going to make people generally candidates, press, focus a lot more on South Carolina. Right now, how can Biden survive? Well, He's got to have a a pretty blockbuster performance in New Hampshire, I think. He's got to be either within a point or two of the winner or the winner, one of those two scenarios. And if he's not? If he's not in the top two, I think that's real, could be the, you know, final uh, 10 count for him. But, you know, one thing about Vice President Biden, which has been a challenge You know, if you go back and look where he was in the beginning, right, and I discount national polls in this thing because we're not voting nationally, right? But across the board, he was well-known. He had name ID. You still have to run a campaign. Joe Biden has gone down in almost every poll from the beginning. And I didn't expect him to stay at those levels when you're in a competition, but you can't fall as far as you have in some of those states. Why doesn't a guy who has been in politics for what is it, 40, 50 years, whatever it is, <laughs> who's run, this is his third presidential campaign. You know, he's got all this name recognition. You know, he was considered a front runner, if not the front runner. Why doesn't a guy like Biden have organization? Well, uh, I think when you're vice president for eight years, you're not the name on the ticket, top name on the ticket. So you're not building an organization for Joe Biden. You're part of Barack Obama's team. And then, you know, he had the tragedy with his son. He wasn't in 2016. It's hard to go out and build a political organization when there's no office that you're running for or that people think you're running for in a presidential campaign, even though we start them, you know, further out from Election Day, presidential Election Day than we have ever before, right, where basically running two-year campaigns now, you're starting from scratch. And he, by the way, had a small state. He was a senator from Delaware. It's not like he had some big infrastructure there. All right. So we are talking on Wednesday morning, the the morning before we fully expect the president to be acquitted in his impeachment trial by the full Senate. And um, the latest Gallup poll shows his approval rating at 49%, highest it's ever been. This is after months of months of nonstop coverage of an impeachment trial in which Democrats have repeatedly accused him of abuse of office, serial lying, uh, soliciting foreign interference in a U.S. election. How do you explain the president's resilience after all this Well, I I hesitate to call it a trial. Uh, The only time you have a non-jury trial in America is if the judge is the decider, and that's not the case here. So Mm -hmm. this really wasn't a a trial, and it's a pattern of Mitch McConnell's behavior that is counter to all of our democratic norms and traditions. You know, 
not giving Garland a hearing in the Senate, not to get <laughs> no. off topic, but it was the first presidential nominee for a Supreme Court justice since Reconstruction who did not get a hearing in the Senate. Kind of odd that you have Reconstruction and then the first African-American president not getting a hearing on a nominee. But look, I think the 49 percent, keep in mind, he's the only president in history of Gallup polling who has never had a day over 50 percent in his approval rating. So I think, you know, if they want to break out the champagne in the White House, what I would tell them to do is look inside that poll uh, and keep in mind it's also among all adults, not voters. So it skews a little bit in favor there. But if you look at his approval rating with independents and uh, moderates, the people you have to persuade to win, it's about 30 percent with both of those. Okay, but, but the but, poll but, also showed that he's got a 63 percent approval rating on on handling the economy. And you know as well as anybody how important that number is uh, in, a, in a reelection. Really? Um, Do you know what Barack Obama's approval rating on the economy was in 2012? It was underwater. Actually, those numbers I find and, and the experience of, of being involved in uh, Obama's reelection is really important because all the metrics on what and how you should judge the economy are not a general question about the economy. It's what's beneath the surface with kind of the working class, the middle class, lower middle class people. How are their lived experience? This has been a Wall Street stock boom economy. It has not been a great economy. And in fact, if you look at the fact checkers in the Washington Post today on Trump's State of the Union and all of his Historic GDP, historic <laughs> yeah, this, that. historic that. <laughs> if you go look at the fact check, they've done a pretty good job of puncturing the yeah. hole there. But I just want to take you back to the impeachment question yes, because please. I mean, I, I sort of you know among the many iconic moments during the State of the Union, which we should talk about, including the ripping up of the speech and the refusal to shake hands, Trump blows his hands. Was just the image last night of watching. Schiff and Nadler sitting there, stone faced, glaring, while the full the Republicans on the House are giving these thunderous applause and chanting for more years. And you know, we've had, as I said before, you know, these months of total focus on cable news and national media on Trump's transgressions, and it doesn't seem to have moved the needle in terms of public perceptions of the president. How, as a partisan Democrat, how disheartening is that and how do you explain it? Well, I don't think it's disheartening. Like I said, it's I look, not I, disheartening. I, no, you can spend no. months of hearings and rhetoric and Schiff gives these, you know, uh, uh, amazing closing arguments and it doesn't change anybody's so sitting, minds. Well, because we're look, we're sitting here in a balkanized media world we live in today. Let's face it. We we when I grew up, probably when you grew up, yeah. not Dan, he's, <laughs> he's younger than he's we are. Kid. But, yeah. Uh, but, you know, we had three networks. We had common news across the channels. And now what you have is instead of having a common conversation through our media outlets, everybody is consuming the news in the media that they agree with. And so that's balkanizing our political ecosystem, not creating opportunities for people to actually engage with each other. You compound that with how we've sorted ourselves. You know, you could read Bill Bishop's Bush on, a book on the big sort. You know, we are living apart. We are not sharing a common narrative every night. So, you know, look at Fox News, for example. Okay. Now, I happen to go on Fox News when they want me to go on. I don't stay away from them because they're very pro-Republican. But they don't even fact check the president. 
I mean, of course, people are approving of him if they're Republicans and in his camp. So he's been able to get conservatives up to a certain level. But if you can't get moderates, and by the way, you win presidential elections by winning the center, even though the Electoral College can skew things slightly. Is there a center when it comes to Donald Trump? Yeah, I still think there's a center. I think it's weak. I think there's also been a center that's been shifting away from Republicans generally. Um, And I think if you want to know if there's a center, and I know he wasn't on the ballot, but in some respects he was in 2018. He put himself on the ballot in a lot of places. When he goes in and campaigns, he wants people to be voting based on him. We had a historic turnout, only 20 million shy of the presidential turnout, a 100-year record. And the biggest shift in vote. He won suburban voters by eight points in 2016. And in 2018, Democrats were even among suburban voters. So suburban voters had long been thought of to be part of the Republican base. That part is eroding. And I think Trump is exacerbating that. He's doing nothing to heal that weakness. And you can't win with just your base in a presidential election. Uh, One... Apart from the the, the skews in the Electoral College, you know, a Democrat could probably win the popular vote by more and still lose the Electoral College, by the way. Well, and and then you lose. Bottom line, politically, impeachment, what's the impact of impeachment? Well, in terms of the election? Yeah. Well, it's all that ultimately counts. He's going to get acquitted. Uh, It's probably, yeah, it's probably, it's going to be gone. It's going to be gone. I think the people I would worry about are if the people, only people who should worry about impeachment are going to be some of the Republicans who voted against having witnesses. I think in swing states, there are a few. You know, if Democrats win, I think we need four seats to gain the majority, right? Um, they've got a couple of vulnerable Republicans here who voted not to hear witnesses. Well, you also got a few uh, Democrats who are in vulnerable seats, oh, yes, starting with absolutely. Doug Jones in Alabama. Right. Um, but by and large, I think, you know, I always say that, and I just was speaking down at a university in Washington last night, my mantra on presidential elections, having worked in four of them, is they're about big things, not small things. They're about the future, not the past. And they're about their lives, not your life. And it doesn't mean your bio doesn't matter. It means ultimately they're about their lives. And that's why when you ask, how's the economy doing? I didn't think most people are translating that in terms of their own lives. I think they translate it into what they're hearing about the economy. But if you look at their 50 percent of Americans are afraid they're never going to get out of debt today. We got 7 million Americans who are three months or more behind on car payments, which basically means they're in default and are going to lose their cars. So the lived experiences of people are not unlike 2012, which still, even though the economy was in recovery, we had created millions of jobs. We were very careful in President Obama's reelect not to overstate where we were. Post-crisis, people weren't feeling it yet. And there's a risk for Trump with some of these voters who may be accessible to him or aren't feeling it yet. And every time he says that stuff, because that's all he can do because of the narcissism, right? I mean, all the greatest in history things are not true, by the way. That's going to alienate people because it makes them feel like you're out of touch with them. So uh, one candidate that we just barely talked about is Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Uh, So he's going to either be first or a close second in Iowa. He's likely to win New Hampshire. He's got organization. He's the most effective fundraiser in, in the group. He's got enormous enthusiasm and a movement behind him. But he's pretty far left. How strong is he as a primary candidate? How strong is he as a general election candidate? What are his uh, uh, vulnerabilities running against Trump? 
So the first part was how strong is he as a uh, in the Democratic in primary. the Democratic primaries? Well, he's shown how strong he is. I mean, he show showed that in 2016. I mean, it was head to head at that point with a household name. A well-established Democrat went in with a lot of credentials and credibility with a lot of Democratic voters, you know, and he gave her a run for her money. Now, he was he stayed in through the end, just as Hillary had done in 2008, long after he could not have a path to the nomination. Now, I think he's going to do the same thing here. I think he's got a very loyal digital fundraising base. But I do think in this process that, you know, we could end up with a deadlocked convention. It depends on how this shakes out just because of the rules and how they work and no superdelegates, et cetera, on the first ballot and this treasure trove on Super Tuesday. 40% of the delegates are going to be decided by March 5th, right, after March uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. I think Bernie is obviously going to stay in the top tier and he's not going to get out. And so we're going to have to have a, a race to the wire again he will stay in even if the delegate count says that he can't get there. Is there going to be a uh, Stop Bernie movement? Everyone's talking about the establishment striking back and a Stop Bernie movement. Will that happen? What does that mean? And would it be effective? Well, let's talk about the makeup of the Democratic Party before we talk about Stop Bernie, right? People overestimate how liberal the Democratic Party is. So, you know, in polling, you ask somebody, a question, or we ask it. We don't just say you liberal, moderate, or conservative. We say very liberal, somewhat liberal, moderate, somewhat conservative, very conservative. Now, if you're somewhat liberal, you're also somewhat moderate. The far left of the Democratic Party represents about a quarter of the party, 25 to 30%. 75% identify as somewhat liberal or moderate. So I think as this goes longer and longer, Bernie's reach will be shorter and shorter. So his ability to get to a majority of delegates may be challenged by that. Again, I'll go back to history for for you. The last time the Democrats nominated the candidate who was most left in the contest was George McGovern in 1972. Who, who didn't do so well, as yeah. I recall. Well, uh, yeah. I, I think uh, he did win one state. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So look, how worried are you that Bernie could win the nomination and it will be an electoral disaster for your party? I'm not going to talk about any nominee being an electoral disaster for the party. I mean, McGovern had other factors at that time. Look, Bernie has a, an Elizabeth Warren as well, who we're not talking about today, and mm-hmm. that may be premature. But, you know, he has a, a very strong diagnosis of the economic problems and anxieties that people are facing in their lives. I don't think all his remedies will fly. But I think if you're in a race of Sanders versus Trump, I think it's a little too early to say uh, how that would play out. I think more Americans will see him over the next several months in these primaries, in their states. And I think until we start seeing right now, by the way, he beats Trump in polls. Now, I'm not saying that that's going to be dispositive. So, so did Hillary Clinton. In I understand. Almost all okay. polls. Well, that's right. right that's right. Day. But, you know, I think if you look at this. What does that say about an incumbent president in a country that has a history, and this should give pause to every Democrat as they think about how they're going to, whether they're going to be active or not in this campaign? You know, I think we've only had 11 incumbent presidents who sought reelection and didn't win out of 44. 
in total. So um, it's a relatively small number, and that's a daunting thing to run against an incumbent president. So uh, Bernie's going to have to find a way to unite the Democratic Party. You know, the burden isn't on the Democratic Party to just unite with Bernie. And if Bernie, during the rest of this campaign, doesn't do that— Have you seen any— He's going to weaken his own— Ability to win. Have you seen any indication at all no. um, that Bernie no. is willing to do no, that? No, yeah. I don't. Yeah. And I think that's a weakness. And yeah. I think that's why a lot of Democrats are still, I would say, distressed by him. He refused to tell people not to vote third party during the last election. You know, he famously said, well, I won't say that because I ran third party and I won. <laughs> well, that's great. But we lost three states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, by 77,000 votes. And 660,000 people voted third party. I thought he was campaigning for Clinton in the end. He did. But he wouldn't tell people not to waste their vote voting third party. And we lost Which is what you were trying to get him to do. Ten times as many people, nine times as many people that we lost by voted third party. And they, a lot of those people were Democrats and were liberal. Were you trying to get him to do that? Yes. And, and so was the media. And he wouldn't do it. So were there like direct pleas from Hillary herself? I to, believe there were, to but I, I can't. I believe there were people in the campaign who asked their representatives to say, "Hey, we've got some third party issues here, and we got to deal with them." So what? But in any, even if the campaign didn't, reporters did. Yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. this election was between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and if you think it's great that people are throwing away their votes. You know, come on, at least own up to it and now say to Democrats, hey, I made a mistake. I should have told because some of those people were my supporters. I should have told them not to waste their votes. So, Joel, talk about the Bloomberg factor. He just announced that he's doubling his ad spend in all the states where he already is. He's been campaigning in California. We had Kevin Sheiky on, on the on the show. He's clearly willing to spend a billion or more. Well, that'll is, still leave him with 52 or right, so left. Yeah, so. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Nothing to worry yeah, about yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but how significant a factor is, is Bloomberg and what are his electoral prospects? Well, we're in uncharted waters here because, you know, and, and they they know it. They're trying to break a model here that could, you know, use some breaking, you know, this tradition of these four states. Well, so far, so good for him, right? I mean, Iowa. You know what? How how much do you know how much money he has spent on the air in California so far? He spent a lot over. I think it's well, I don't know. In California, he's totally spent over 200 million. Yeah. And I think about 20 million of that's in California with nobody else advertising in California. And he's in single digits in polling Mm -hmm. in California. Mm -hmm. I think they have. I, I'm not saying that that's, it's a flawed strategy. It's the only way for them to do it at this point. I don't know if they have a theory that you can win this with just an air war. Now, he's building an organization on the ground. They're paying people a lot of money. They're guaranteeing their jobs through the election. All very attractive things. And I think as people drop out, they may get more people. But I don't know that you can just win these campaigns saturating on the air and digitally, I think. Um, and I know now people are upset that the party is going to drop the, you know, grassroots donor rule and let them on the debate stage. I, I think we should ha- we have to have him on the debate stage. You know, what are we going to do? Not have him tested in the field? Let him stand up there with other mm. candidates 
and let's see how he holds up in but those just situations. The, the optics of a billionaire spending hundreds of millions of dollars to elect himself president. I, it just does that bother you? You mean at like Donald all? Trump? Oh, he didn't really spend. Well, his he own actually money. didn't yeah, spend right. as yeah. much and, money, and, right. and he may not be a billionaire. Yeah, right. Because yeah, right. uh, his debts may be, you know. No, seriously, as net, a net worth uh, could be a little bit know, lower. Again, as a you know lifelong Democrat, you know the idea of this former Republican billionaire buying himself your party's nomination, does that offend you in any way? No more so than a, you know, game show TV personality. But we know what you think about that. Right. (laughs) I I mean, look, this is your party. Here's the thing about my profession, right? I have to have a certain amount of trust in the American people, whether I like the outcomes or not. And I don't always like the outcomes, right? I don't underestimate them. You know, it's the system we have. Do I think that the system needs to be fixed? Yeah. But I. what are you going to do as a party? Say, no, Mike Bloomberg, you can't run. I, I don't think that's the right choice. I think that requires a change in laws. I think we've got to find a way to get rid of Citizens United. That this money, is not a Citizens United is issue. It's that. he's spending and his that, own money. And if he wants And it's to, publicly and, disclosed. And, and voters can judge whether that's uh, a liability or a strength for him. Some people might like the idea that, oh, this guy's not going to be bought by anybody. That's fine. Some people may find that appealing. Some people may say, no, it's kind of it's tainting the process in a way that it shouldn't. And I'm not going to prejudge it. I like I say, I have confidence in voters. I trust them. I don't always like their decisions. But until somebody gives me a better system, I don't like the idea of banning someone from spending their own money now. And I think we wouldn't be able to do it constitutionally since the Supreme Court has equated money with speech. You can't stop a candidate from spending the money. Joel, you mentioned the possibility. Let of, me. Can I add yeah, one yeah, note? Sure. If Mike Bloomberg spends all this money and doesn't get the nomination, it's going to dissuade a lot of other billionaires <laughs> from thinking you can win that way. That that by the way, that if that happened, and yeah. I'm not saying I have a bias here, but that would be a, a real concrete outcome that would say to people, that's not the way you win this. You mentioned the possibility of a contested convention if. Bernie makes it to uh, Milwaukee with, you know, a plurality of delegates, but not enough. And there is a con- and, and then it's it's decided on a second ballot with super delegates. Should people be concerned about that? I mean, the, the Bernie supporters are already calling that a, you know, a legal, you know, talking about the legalized, the legal coup. Um, and no, effective- here's why it's yeah. not a legal coup. I'll, I'll explain why. Because right now the super delegates, and, and this shows that the Bernie folks should bone up on the rules a little bit. So what used to be superdelegates are now called unpledged delegates. They have no say on the first ballot. If there is no person with a majority on the first ballot, those unpledged delegates come in, but all other delegates are unpledged also. So this isn't going to be a coup of 1,900 people. You are going to have, whatever the number is now, 4,400 people you could have been a Bernie delegate and you may say, you know what? I'm not going with Bernie. Okay. And you could change your vote on the second so ballot. It starts over. Everybody becomes yeah. unpledged, which right. could mean for a very long night or yeah. several days in a convention hall. The poli- they we may have to the political reporters wet dream. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> they may have to extend the lease on the building for a few days. Right. Speaking <laughs> of uh, long nights, did you watch the State of the Union? Well, I was 
flying back from Washington, so I got back, I think, about midstream. Okay. Uh, so your, uh, your take on uh, all the uh, drama and optics. Look, I think the thing that's most distressing, and it's a sign of the times, and I think it's disgraceful, but, you know, I think disgrace is probably too soft a word for where some of the real gatekeepers in the Republican Party ought to be. That is not a political event. That is not a campaign event. You do not chant four more years there. That's a speech to the American people. And you turning it into that charade, to that is a disgrace. It shows what's gone wrong with the Republican Party in this country. I am so tired of their leaders. There's a great book out called How Democracies Die. I don't know if either of you guys have read read it. And the real risk of authoritarian power grabbing is when the gatekeepers in the political system fail to do their jobs. And the gatekeepers in this system are not doing the job. The gatekeepers in the Republican Party are not doing their job. And that, to me, is disgraceful for their leaders beforehand not to put that a cap on that and not to do it during the event. But the two images that people are talking about the most and are probably going to be remembered the most is Trump refusing to shake Pelosi's hand and Pelosi ripping up the speech. Well, what what where where would you want to start? <laughs> well, I'm just like, you know, which image will is more powerful do you think in voters' minds and how does it cut? Well, look The president refused to shake the speaker's hand, which is probably the first known time in memory. Now, the president doesn't seem to understand anything about our Constitution, frankly. We have separate but equal branches of government, and she is one of the three leaders of our branches of government. And so he basically uh, showed, I'm just going to crap all over our norms like I do every day, and so be it. So and is the correct response to rip up the speech? Who cares? It's a piece of paper. What, what, what are you going to do? Take it home and save it? I mean, it's going in the trash one. It's going in a burn bag somewhere, isn't Actually, it? Actually, somebody's suggesting she destroyed a federal record and therefore she could be prosecuted. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was from yeah. a Trump no, no. supporter the on Twitter record, this morning. The federal record <laughs> yeah. is in the book of the, of the State <laughs> of the Union. By yeah. the way, yeah. let's be very clear here, right? Yeah. There's no requirement and never has been for the president of the United States to give a speech. They have to deliver a State of the Union message to Congress, and the book is the official record, not the speech. Wow. All right. Well, Joel Benenson, thanks again for your insights, and we will continue to want to have you back as this wild campaign unfolds. I'd be happy to. I suspect through Super Tuesday is going to be a little while, and then then some. Thank you. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks to Democratic pollster Joel Benenson and Yahoo News' own national political reporter Brittany Shepard for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.